when I came to Buddhism, I think one of the reasons that I trusted it is because the teaching started with suffering. Started with acknowledging and normalizing how little love, how little compassion, how little wisdom there can be without practice, without training. And I was uh, certain that the Buddha was right about the suffering in life, about the craving, about the aversion, the ill will, the hatred that causes suffering. I knew it intimately. I knew it well. After sitting for a while and coming to some retreats and reading some books and starting to hear about this loving-kindness business, I was a little skeptical. I had some suspicion that maybe the the hippies sort of added that shit in. (laughs) A little suspicious that, you know, the Buddha seemed like a really righteous dude. He was giving it to us straight. Look at the suffering. Look at the craving. Look at the causes of suffering. And then all of a sudden they're saying, now radiate loving kindness towards all living beings. It took me a while to to get it because even as I started doing loving kindness, my primary experience was the resistance. I would say it and I sat my first retreat with Jack 23, 24 years ago now. And right from the beginning, doing the loving kindness, but not feeling kind, not feeling loving, feeling resistance, feeling like actually it made me more angry, (laughs) not less, Um, more aware of hatred, not less, more aware of how unworthy I felt of forgiveness, not some kind of instant heart opening, but just a lot of resistance. My sense is And I don't, I don't know, but I have this sense, maybe it's a view or a belief, but my sense is that the, the Buddha was practicing concentration and mindfulness, so much of what we've been doing and teaching here, and that through the mindfulness and seeing the mind clearly and all of the habitual reactive tendency of clinging and judging and fear and lusting for pleasure and aversion to pain, seeing that clearly, and as we've been speaking about, Wes and the mindfulness last night, um, Winnie and the effort, when we put this effort in and we start to see more and more clearly, first what we see is the problem. First we see what's in the way. My sense is that this is what happened for the Buddha, is that he did the mindfulness and he said, oh, there's all of this craving, all of this clinging, all of this survival instinct of this body, and it causes all of this suffering. And when we let go, what remains is a loving heart. When we clear away what's covering it, what's obscuring it, when he battled with Mara and he's the Buddha sitting there under the Bodhi tree and being attacked by lust and being attacked by hatred and being attacked by doubt and fear. And as he responded in the wise way, in the appropriate way, with not taking it so personal, seeing this is just the mind. It's not who I am. It was compassion that 
remained. There was compassion that responded to the hatred, to the violence, to the aversion, to the pain of being. For instance, those of you who are familiar with the Noble Eightfold Path, and uh, as we've said, and I think Winnie said the other night, this is the core map. Understanding and intention, ethical behavior and meditation, wisdom, ethics, meditation, is the path. But in that original formulation, he didn't teach loving kindness. He didn't give compassion instructions with what I think is because he felt like, well, if you're mindful, what will come to you is compassion. I don't have to teach you compassion because mindfulness will lead to compassion because that was his experience. Mindfulness will lead to love. That doesn't have to be a separate teaching. It doesn't have to be a separate practice because the outcome of this eightfold path of these four foundations of mindfulness will be a loving, compassionate heart, mind. Chitta, heart mind. Later, it does seem that he realized that it wasn't working so quickly for some. And that maybe he ought to actually give some loving kindness instructions. Rather than just waiting for the mindfulness to bring love and to bring kindness and to bring compassion and appreciation and equanimity waiting for that purification to happen. Uh, and then I think that's where we get the metta sutta. Later, some monks came to him and said, we're really living in fear in the forest. We're really suffering. And he said, well, try this. Wish for all beings to be at ease. And do it as a training of your mind, a training of your heart. May all beings be at ease. Rather than waiting for it to happen, Develop it. Cultivate it. Incline your heart towards it. Direct your mind towards loving kindness, towards compassion. And that was a lot of what I did. I did the loving kindness and didn't feel good. Did the compassion and didn't mean it. Did the forgiveness and felt resistance and anger and then numbness. And then, you know, the resistance ended at some point, and I would do it, but I still didn't mean it. And after years of doing it, I started to really feel it. So some combination of mindfulness and seeing my mind, the mind, loosening the identification with the bad habits of mind, the, what was blocking, not taking it so personal, and the training of mind and heart through the repetition of these phrases. Forgiveness phrases, loving kindness phrases, compassion phrases. Also appreciation and equanimity, but not really my topic tonight. But what we call the Brahma Viharas, the qualities of heart, these uh, divine, these wonderful, qualities of heart that we all have, that all beings have, that exist, that are part of our nature, part of every being's potential. There's no question here about worth or ability. Every living being is able to live from love and from compassion. Every being is worthy of living, both being met with love and sharing loving kindness and compassion. That, and this is the good news, even if you don't know it, as I didn't know it. It is truth with a capital T, not a philosophy. Not a view, not an opinion, not a perspective. 
It is the truth that you are worthy of love, whether you know that yet or not, and that you have the ability to live from a place of love, whether you have developed that ability yet or not. One of the teachings that I like very much from the Buddha that speaks to this process of coming into a loving heart and a compassionate mind is called the simile of the cloth. And I like it for a lot of reasons and on a lot of levels. I think that one of the reasons that I like it is because this teaching starts with someone kind of confronting the Buddha about whether he was um, doing his good devotional purification practices of the Brahmanic Hindu tradition. They come to him and they say, are you bathing in the river? Are you doing your devotional practice in the divine waters? Are you purifying? Are you washing away your sins as our people have for centuries? And I like it because the Buddha says, no, I don't do that. I don't have a devotion practice. I don't have an external um, practice in that way. He says, I don't bathe in the rivers. He says, what, what I do and what I teach is I, ter- I teach and I practice internal bathing. I don't go to the river for my practice. I sit here and I bring the light of awareness, the, uh, the water of awareness, and I do internal cleansing practice. Inner bathing, he calls it. And he goes on to say, the first task that I have performed and that I teach is the purification of mind and heart. I'm first seeing all of the ways that the cloth that has the ability to be cleansed and purified, is stained. And so although the theme of our retreat is the perfections, he says first we have to see the imperfections. Just like starting with dukkha, first we have to see the suffering. First we turn our attention, we bring the awareness in, and we see all of the imperfections of mind, sometimes called defilements or obscurations, the way that the mind is soiled, that the cloth is stained, it's not uh, able to take an even dye. Even if you dip it into a dye, the cloth of the heart and mind, it will not take wisdom, it will not take compassion, because there's all of these things that are blocking it. Make sense so far? I hope. He names 16 mind states that get in the way. Imperfections. He says, your first task in this inner bathing, and I imagine you've been doing this all week. He says, first, see the greed. See the tendency of mind to crave, to crave, to crave. See the hatred. See the tendency of mind towards ill will, towards anger, towards resentment, contempt, insolence. Really get intimate with the suffering tendencies of mind. See the greed. See the hatred. See the envy, the avarice, the deceit, the fraud, the tendency to delude ourselves or to delude others towards dishonesty. Looking at, is that deceit, is that fraud fueled by greed? Is it fueled by hatred? What's motivating these mind states or these actions?
So greed and hatred, envy, dishonesty. He goes on, he says, look at the obstinance. Look at the rivalry. Look at the tendency, the comparing mind, the competitive mind. The rivalry, I'm, I'm against you. I'm in competition with you. That way that we create a separate self that is in opposition to others. Rivalry, obstinance. And then all of the ways that the mind creates, all of these imperfect, that creates this self, self self-centeredness. He names it as conceit and arrogance and vanity. Have you seen? You've been hanging out with your conceit this week? With the arrogance, with the vanity that the mind creates. I mean, the good news is, as Wes so beautifully said last night, it's not your fault. And this is where Buddhism is so beautiful. Like some traditions are like, oh, these are your sins, these are your shortcomings, these are your, you know, this, this is what, because you're a bad person. And Buddha is saying, this is just what the mind does. Look at it. Look at how self-cherishing it is. So, How much conceit. Now, conceit isn't really, I think, different in Buddhism than I've heard about it anywhere else. The conceit of I am. And there's a place where the Buddha said, you know, this conceit can manifest, as we usually think about it, as an um, inflated sense of self, I am better than. That's how you usually think about conceit, right? I'm better than others, superior to, conceited. He's so conceited. But in Buddhism, we take it to another level with this, the understanding that it's not just the inflation, also the experience of deflation, of low self-esteem, of less than. Again, the comparing mind either saying, I'm better than, and the Buddha said, also, if you feel that you're less than, conceit. Unworthiness, conceit. Self-doubt, conceit. Low self-esteem, conceit. Self, conceit. Now here's the confusing part. Some of you know this. He says, conceit is greater than, conceit is less than. Conceit is also the thought, I am equal to. That's where he loses me. Mostly. Because it's easy to say, okay, I can see this inflated sense of self, too much self. Deflated sense of self, too much self in the deflation, in the self-centeredness of I'm unworthy. But then he's saying, even feeling that I am equal to, even equality, there's too much I am in there. There's too much creating, creation of I am a permanent self in comparison to your permanent self. Too much belief in a permanent self. He's saying, so even this is conceit. Let go of all comparing mind. Let go of all self-referential amness in comparison, in relationship to others. And the arrogance. I've been sitting with some reflections on arrogance. I was having a fight with another Dharma teacher. Did you know that we fight with each other sometimes? (laughs) She said to me, you used to be such a good Buddhist, but you've become so arrogant. 
And in my mind, I said, fuck you. (laughs) But out of my mouth came something much more (laughs) passive-aggressive. I think I thanked her for being such a good teacher to me. (laughs) Told her that I'd always appreciate her. And I started to realize that I thought I was just very confident. I thought that I had just a lot of confidence, which is true. But I saw what she was talking about because along with the confidence is also a tendency to be dismissive of other people's views. That sort of, I'm, I'm right. I'm confident and I'm right. And you're probably not. And, and the arrogance of taking that stance and that, that mind state and believing in it. Conceit and arrogance and vanity. And the last one, and so you see the theme here, right? He's saying, look at the greed in the mind, look at the hatred, look at the self-centeredness. The last one, which is in a, car- a category of its own, he says the uh, imperfection, the stain, the defilement of negligence when we neglect our practice, when we neglect ourselves, when we neglect our responsibilities, when we neglect our ethics. This tendency, I think, that um, sometimes is procrastination, neglecting, putting it off. This tendency of the mind to not do what needs to be done. And then as these teachings go, he says, and one abandons these imperfections of mind. Have you abandoned these? Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy? I mean, it's, and then just just stop it. (laughs) Stop the conceit, stop the hatred, stop the greed, stop the, stop it. Just abandon it. It's too simplistic, and of course, that's what we're here doing. We're trying. I'm, I'm trying. I've been trying to abandon for 25 years and now, and some of you for 35, and some of you for 45, and some of you have just started this practice of starting to try to abandon these mind states and the identification with them that cause so much suffering. That's what we're trying to do, but it's not so simple. We all know that. What I see in reflecting on my own relationship to this is that actually when I came to practice, I believed in hatred. I actually believed that it was something that I needed. I needed to protect myself with anger, with resentment, with ill will. I believed in hatred. I believed in greed. I, 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 I believed in I need to get mine at any cost. I need to survive. I need, I need more. I believed in it. I believed in envy. I believed in jealousy. I believed in conceit. I believed in I am. Mostly I believed, you know, that swinging from I'm better than some, I'm less than others. Maybe equal, but I believed in the self. The arrogance. I believed in vanity. I am my subculture. I am punk. I believed in my image. What happened as I started practicing, I wasn't able to abandon maybe any of this stuff right of way. But, and I, I hope, and I, I know this is happening for you, what happens is we abandon the belief. And that happened pretty quickly for me. I no longer believed in hatred. I wasn't able to stop it completely. 
But I wanted, I, I started practicing loving kindness because I no longer believed in hatred. I no longer believed in greed. I started practicing generosity because I was able to abandon the belief in these causes of suffering as something that was good and to see them as something that was just causing suffering in my life and in the world. So even though teachings can be a little kind of just abandoned, perhaps the first step is just abandoning belief in and then identification with taking these tendencies of mind to be personal, to be our fault. This shift that we're always talking about of beginning to relate to the mind rather than from it, to the emotions rather than out of them. And the teaching goes on to say, and now once you've abandoned and we've purified these qualities of mind, then you will gain perfect confidence in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. Unshakable faith and confidence in the potential for awakening and in the truth that we're experiencing directly and the community of people who you're doing that with. Both the enlightened ones of the past and those on the practice too. Awakening here and now. And this is really close, this is very close to my direct experience. Not unshakable faith, but the more we let go, the more we see the causes of suffering and experience some uh, release from suffering, the more confidence we have. The more you say, this shit works. The Buddha was not wrong. Meditation actually, although sometimes it makes it worse before it makes it better. Sometimes we become hyper-vigilant, hyper-aware of how much suffering there is, how much hatred before we get to the love. But you gain confidence and I'm on the right track. I love you, keep going. That internal, keep going, I'm on the right track even though it's so hard sometimes. And he goes on to say, you abandon these imperfections of mind, you gain perfect confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and then spontaneously you will experience Gratitude, gladness will fill you. Gladness will lead to an experience of joy. Joy will lead to an experience of tranquility. Tranquility will lead to an experience of abiding happiness and and spiritual pleasure. Not sensual pleasure, not material pleasure, but the sukha, the happiness that's not based on conditions. And that with that happiness, uh, the mind will be easily concentrated. And it's one of those teachings, uh, many of you are aware, I like to fly the flag of effort, 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 against the stream, against the stream, against the stream. We have to work to free ourselves. And this first part of the teaching, that's what the Buddha is saying. You do the work of abandoning belief in, identification with, going against greed and hatred and self-centeredness, that this is the against the stream. But there's a way in which he's saying, like, once you've done that, you've gone far enough up the stream that now you're at the source. You're at the kind of spring that is the source of the stream. And at the source there, there is gratitude. And it's now almost effortless. Gratitude is just coming gladness and joy and tranquility and pleasure and happiness comes from the abandoning when we clear away what was blocking happiness. There's a deep source of happiness from within. It says when we have this experience 
of abandoning the causes of suffering and experiencing these awakening factors, these heart-mind experiences that come in practice. He says, then um, pleasure will no longer be a problem. You'll no longer suffer about pleasure. And he's talking to monastics in this. And he's saying, you know, you'll be able to eat the most delicious food and not cling to it, not suffer about it. And so I think that the translation for us is you'll be able to have the sense pleasures in your life, the appropriate sense pleasures, with non-attached enjoyment, without turning it into suffering, without clinging, without craving for more. Just being able to enjoy the joys, the pleasures, both the spiritual, unworldly, and the worldly, sensual, or material. And finally, the teaching gets to my topic. (laughs) Abandon the defilements of mind, the imperfections, take refuge, perfect confidence in the path and your potential for awakening and experiencing the joy, the gladness, the happiness. He says, and then you will just sit, he says in this conversation, and then we just sit or walk or go through our lives and we radiate loving kindness. And again, this isn't now we practice loving kindness, but that from the letting go of what was in the way, what remains is a heart that sends loving kindness. And the traditional way is in the four directions. And you send loving kindness to the north and you send you know loving kindness just radiates pervades to the south and to the east and to the west because that's what's left that's part of who we are and it's just love kindness friendliness the wish for all beings to be at ease including this being an ease of heart, a natural love that comes as the fruit of the letting go. It says you radiate love and kindness, this wish. And loving kindness is always appropriate. This attitude of friendliness, of unconditional, positive regard. Always, 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 always appropriate for every circumstance, for every being. There is never a time that you can think of where loving kindness would be inappropriate. It doesn't mean that loving kindness doesn't have boundaries. It doesn't mean that forgiveness doesn't have boundaries. But it's the attitude of heart. It's the attitude of mind. And he goes on to the other heart qualities, uh, Brahma Viharas, he says, and compassion radiating in the four directions. We pervade one quarter with care, with compassion. The next quarter, the next quarter, east, west, south, North, above, below, all directions. Now, compassion is not always appropriate. You know this, right? (laughs) Compassion only has one object. Pain. No pain, you don't need compassion. If you go around sending compassion to somebody who's having pleasure, it's weird. We go around, I'm having such a beautiful time. I have so much compassion for all of this joy. Wrong response. (laughs) 
compassion has as its object, as the uh, response to pain, to pain, to suffering, to all of the difficult, unpleasant, the unpleasant Vedana, all of the unpleasant sounds, smells, tastes, sights, sensations, emotions, call for compassion. Internal and external, call for compassion. Radiating compassion, the heart that now responds appropriately. Now we're wired with this inappropriate response, which is hatred for pain, which is aversion to pain. And what the Buddha is saying is that when you see through that, and your heart starts to meet pain with mercy, with care, with loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness is appropriate to pain, and compassion is appropriate to pain. But he goes on and he says also appreciation, sympathetic joy, appreciating the pleasures, the joys, radiating it in all directions. And again, appreciation only for pleasure, only for joy. You don't go around appreciating someone's suffering. There's a name for that. When we take pleasure in someone else's suffering. And he goes on to talk about appreciation for the joy and compassion for the pain and equanimity. This balanced heart that says, I care about myself. I care about all beings. I have love for myself. I have love for all beings. I appreciate my joy. I appreciate your joy. And I also understand that uh, everyone has their own karma and their own path and their own unfolding and that the happiness of others does not depend upon my wishes. Having a balanced heart Having a balanced heart that doesn't get codependent, that doesn't get attached. Equanimity, meaning this balance of heart that has love, that has compassion, that has appreciation, but doesn't need others to be different than they are. This radical acceptance of everyone's got to do their own work. And my love and care for you maybe will inspire you to do some of your work. Maybe it will support you. But I can't do it for you. I'm here. I've got your back. But I also understand that I have limits in how much I can do for anyone but myself. And that this is a natural unfolding. You hear how this is? He's saying that this is, there's kind of a, I heard one teacher say that this is a little bit like um, how the body heals itself, like when you cut yourself. And, you know, there's, and then the body, the blood cells, whatever it is, the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the scab forms. The body heals itself. And that part of the way that I've heard this explained and I like is that when you do a certain amount of letting go, a certain amount of no longer taking personal these qualities of mine, that this joy and love and compassion comes all by itself. That there's a way that the heart does it. Shines forth. He says when you've abandoned what needs to be abandoned, when you've come to this experience of confidence that you're doing the right thing and you continue to do it, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the path, the practice, you've had this experience of gladness, 
happiness and joy and tranquility, the concentrated, deep insight, transformative insight that has led to the heart of loving kindness and of compassion and equanimity, appreciation. The way that it is traditionally translated is that um, you're freed from all sense desires and will have no more suffering in your life. Done is what had to be done. Freedom is here, is experienced. Liberation is tasted. I do not like the translation of freedom from sense desires. I went back and forth with a teacher recently that was translating it that way, and I said, what's the actual poly term? Because it doesn't make sense to me. Because you have a body, of course you're going to desire sense pleasures. I, don't, I hate it when Buddhism sets it up of like, and you're not going to have any more sense desires. It just seems like bullshit. Of course you're going to want pleasure. Of course you're going to not want pain. That's just what this biology does. It doesn't want pain. It wants pleasure. He said that the actual word is kama, and kama as in sensual lust, like the kama sutra, like the sexual kama. He said it's freedom from kama. Uh, and it's very different, actually, if we say you will no longer suffer from lust. Lust in the craving I have to have is much different than saying you won't have any desire. So different than to desire love than to lust for it. Or even to desire sex than to lust for it. Or even to desire happiness than to lust for it. I think that this is very important um, technical point around what's possible. It's possible to be free from craving the cause of suffering, including all forms of delusional lust that says, I have to have. It is possible. I don't think it's possible from, to be free from wanting. I don't think wanting ever goes away. But you don't suffer about wanting. Wanting is take it or leave it. You're okay without satisfying desire. Not okay without satisfying craving, lust. The last part of this teaching is that the Buddha says, by doing this, by abandoning and experiencing these heart qualities and becoming a force of loving kindness in this world, a force of compassion, he says, you will become a refuge for all living beings. There's only two places in the whole Pali Canon that the Buddha talks, tells someone to, about taking refuge or becoming a refuge, only twice. And so over and over we hear about people spontaneously taking refuge. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. But he never tells them to do that. He never teaches. He doesn't, people don't come and he says, now you should take refuge in me. Let's do it. They just do it. It's just a spontaneous, like, I'm so inspired, I take refuge. But in this teaching, and one other place, he says, and you will become a refuge for all beings because you will have the appropriate response to pain. You'll have compassion for pain, and that will be a refuge for people who are in pain. You will have loving kindness. You will have appreciation. You will have equanimity. You will have such great wisdom that you will be able to meet every person where they're at, with whether they're in joy or whether they're in pain or confusion or wisdom. You'll become a refuge for all living beings. 
so beautiful. And it makes this whole, uh, I think it becomes part of the social, political, uh, activist part of, of our practice. That this isn't just about self-help. It's not just about our freedom. That the outcome of our freedom is creating a positive change. As becoming a refuge and becoming a force of compassion in the world as Jack so beautifully spoke about with all of his stories and all of these teachings on what it's like to really put our life's energy from the inside out, from the wisdom that's developed here, on the cushion, on retreat, through your own effort. Becoming a refuge. And creating refuges like this place, like this retreat. Creating refuges like Spirit Rock, or Against the Stream, or Inside LA, or Mission Dharma, or IMS. All of these refuges that we create when we do our work. Spiritual refuges for people to do their work, and then the broader social political, environmental. Your mindfulness practice is going to lead to love whether you like it or not. It's just what happens. It's going to lead to compassion whether that's what you're looking for or not. It's part of the process of awakening. And it's very good and the way that I think that this is usually talked about, the way that I usually talk about it, is the, the development, the cultivation, through the repetition of the loving-kindness practice, the forgiveness, the compassion of training the mind and the heart in this dire- direction, inclining it in that direction. But for tonight, I wanted to share with you this perspective of inner bathing, purification, with the outcome being love and service and confidence and freedom. So let's sit together for a moment before we end. And as you sit, to whatever extent you can. Pervade, radiate, send loving kindness to yourself. Compassion to yourself. Your pain, your life, your being. And appreciation to yourself. Don't forget the joys, the successes, the progress you've already made. And sharing this in all directions, kindness and compassion and appreciation to all beings everywhere. May each one of us become a refuge. a light, an ally for all living beings.
It's a tradition, Jack has spoken about this as the temporary monastery, this monastic practice that we're doing. Um, it's the tradition in many Buddhist traditions and in many places to, um, at times throughout the month uh, in the schedule, to do a, an all-night meditation practice. To do, uh, sometimes it coordinated with the moon, the new moon or the full moon. I don't know where the moon's at tonight, but there are um, some people who, ha- who would like to do an all-night practice period tonight who want to continue from here doing sitting and walking in 45-minute uh, increments um, all the way through. So some of you may like to do that. You may feel energized. You may feel like we're in the kind of heart of the retreat and I want to do that. Some of you just want to go to bed. <laughs> totally okay to do that. So it's an open invitation. There's no uh, pressure at all, uh, but a little bit curious with a show of hands. How many people think they might practice late into the night or try to go all night? Okay, so a handful of people. It's up to you if you want to. Um, what will be put out is a sign-up sheet. And I think that the, uh, to ring the bell for the sitting or ring the bell for the walking, I think that what's best is to take um, the ones sort of in order so that, you know, don't sign up for the 4 a.m. Just in case there's no 2 a.m. Because, you know, if, you know, and, and maybe there's at least a couple people who will do it all night regardless of, of if they're joined by others. Um, but, you know, just in case even the last holdout at 4 a.m. says that's enough and decides to go to bed. So sign up, you know, at, for the 10, for the 11, for the 12, for the 1, for the 2. Um, and no pressure at all, but considering it, it's a, it's a great thing to do um, at this point in a retreat. And, um, so enjoy some walking practice and come back for the 9 o'clock. There'll be a sign up out there for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.